It is 11.55 p.m. on New Year's Eve, and we open over St. Fleur, downtown glittering and bright, the lights fading out farther from the epicenter into total darkness, a waxing moon reflecting on the calm lake. Our focus shifts towards a neighborhood west of downtown, into a nice apartment building and through the peephole of one door. Hanging from hooks on the wall are a dark leather messenger bag with shiny clasps and a light gray oversized designer purse. We move into the living room where we see two people sitting on the couch with video game controllers in their hands, a half-eaten pizza, and fancy cocktails sitting on the coffee table. Matthew, can you please tell us what Jeremiah looks like? Jeremiah appears to be a contradiction in this scene. He's wearing a set of warm pajamas with very obvious patches and holes, a couple of stains that haven't gone away, despite the number of washes they've been through. Well-manicured hands with nails painted a deep purple deftly manipulate the controller. He appears to take very good care of himself, barely showing any sign he's approaching 40. His skin is smooth, so he can still make out the odd wrinkle here and there. His dark brown eyes linger on Dinah, crow's feet peeking through the makeup. His black hair is smoothed back, and some gray hairs are poking through where the dye has worn off. Behind him, an expensive pinstripe suit hangs on a hook. Jeremiah is clearly winning the game that they're playing, and Dinah, the auburn-haired woman sitting next to him, jokingly tosses the controller at him. She smiles as she says, you know I just let you win, right? The camera pans over the two as they lean in close, out of the window towards the moon. From the moon we pan down into a party taking place in a small park stuffed with too many people. The camera pans through the crowd, landing on the face of a young man who is moving similarly through the crowd, talking to others in attendance and shaking their hands. Evan, can you please tell us what Victor looks like? Victor's large, tall and broad. Strong like a dock worker, not like a bodybuilder or a gym rat. He isn't trimmed or toned. He's used to eating well, but doesn't look like he has been in the last few weeks. He's got dark brown hair and a slightly darker beard. He keeps that hair short and the beard long. And it looks like he hasn't been taking quite as good care of it as he used to. He has scars on his knuckles and forearms from fighting, let's say, animals. And one prominent scar on his face that runs from his left cheekbone into his beard. He wears multiple layers of clothing to uh, combat the cold. Long underwear, jeans, socks, heavy boots a navy blue sweater that has a torn and stretched collar, and a long black wool overcoat. He smiles as he uh, meets the people from his past again. As Victor moves through the crowd, a plump woman with yellow eyes places a hand on his shoulder, stopping him in his tracks. As she offers him a warm cup of tea and maybe something else in a red solo cup, the camera pans through the steam past them towards a concrete wall where the ball drop is being projected. As the camera focuses, the wall changes and turns to show a new crowd, a new party, and a different park. We see a pair of nervous-looking men lean in to kiss as the ball finally drops, both shocked that the other made a move as well. The camera shifts up to a rock on the hill behind them, where a striking figure swirling two small items in his hands sits watching them. Eric, can you please tell us what Silk looks like? Silk sits on the large decorative rock, looking perfectly at ease in his electric blue suit and hat. His deep eggplant shirt is unbuttoned at the collar. To the casual observer, he appears to be a large, round Asian man who could be anywhere from late 20s to early 50s, depending on who's doing the observing. He looks into the camera with a bright, welcoming smile. At first, his eyes are the exact shade of cobalt as his outfit. Then he blinks, and those normal, if startling, eyes are replaced with velvet blackness, pierced with pinpricks of light, the night sky captured within his gaze. His smile broadens, showing teeth that are a little sharper than they should be. He leaps off his perch, landing impossibly gently on feet wrapped in designer loafers. For just a minute, some trick of moonlight and shadow seemed to illuminate two pairs of wings, one ephemeral and barely there, the other intricate in pattern. He straightens, settles his jacket on his shoulders, and the wings vanished like the illusions they must have been. Our focus follows to the ground as Silk pockets his trophies to a shiny patch of ice. As the camera zooms in, it begins to melt and bubble. We pull back from a concoction brewing in a crock pot, surrounded by a mess of arcane ingredients spread out on a work table. Consulting a book with notes written in the margins and furrowing his brow stands another figure. Andy, can you please tell us what Alistair looks like? Alistair is long, lanky, and messy. He is more leg than man. His hair is shaggy and dyed what could best be described as fire engine red. Not particularly well dyed. 
In spite of being a magic user, he uses traditional hair dye. Normally, his clothing is very fashion-forward and trendy for about 10 years ago. But currently, since he is alone, he is wearing just a tank top and pajama pants. He's not trying to impress anybody, so his clothing sort of hangs off of his body at odd angles. It seems like it is decidedly not in the proper size. And he is currently stirring the contents of the crockpot in front of him, furrowing his brow as he flips through the book off to the side. Something clearly not going quite right. As Alistair flips the book off to the side, a red light starts glowing from behind him. The camera follows past as Alistair turns to face it, zooming into the fire that has begun to emit from the markings that form the circle. As we zoom out and up of another bonfire, we see burning traces of pages of a book with illustrations in the margin floating into the air. On the other side of the fire, turning away with a dozen roses in his hands, is another man. Jeremy, can you please tell us what Alex looks like? Alex is a white man in his middle 50s. He has medium-length brown hair, which he generally keeps tucked back, and a salt-and-pepper beard. Uh, The gray is just starting to creep up into his hairline. He's built solidly. He was career military, and that shows. Granted, he was career military in the 1800s, and that also shows. Alex has strong dad bod energy. He usually dresses well, but not ostentatiously, and tonight is no different. He's got pressed gray slacks, brogues under that. A nice white button-down shirt tosses on a long gray cardigan and a red scarf wrapped around his neck. And for just a moment, as he is turning away from this fire, we can see in his face that he is extremely exhausted. Alex looks like he has not slept in days, and in fact, probably hasn't. We follow Alex as he walks up a winding drive to a large, beautiful Gothic church backdropped by the Lake Superior. The gate is closed, so he places the roses in the gate. As his hands pull away from the metal, a single church bell rings out clear over the cape. And we cut to the next morning. We are back in Jeremiah's apartment. We get a shot of Jeremiah's digital alarm clock, which reads 6.54. And there is a knock at Jeremiah's door. Jeremiah will disentangle himself from Dinah. Dinah is not in the bed right now. He will momentarily be very confused and then grope around for his pants and sleepily rubbing his eyes, make his way over to a front door and look through the peephole. As you make your way to the front door, you see that Dinah is in the kitchen wearing some of your clothes and like, not your nicest clothes, but nicer clothes like she is dressed to go meet a client and is making toast. As you look through the peephole, it is Eric Zarn on the other side of your door. Fuck. Jeremiah is not ready for this. He has not had time to put on his face, as it were. He will let out a deep sigh, sort of like straighten up move his hair back a bit best he can do with his fingers center himself though he doesn't look it he will pretend to be jeremiah for a little bit and he will open the door and not say anything just stare pointedly at eric and make it very very clear that he is not welcome this is an incredibly bad time and if decorum would permit it jeremiah would launch himself and strangle him Eric, the pompous asshole that he is, doesn't care about any of that. Good morning, Jeremiah. I hope that the new year is treating you well already. He looks past you towards Dinah in the kitchen. Jeremiah's gonna step forward and push Eric out of his doorway and close the door behind him, cross his arms against his chest, and... (sighs) What do you want? I have a lead that I need you to follow up on. He will gesture for him to continue. Kieran Shearer is a shop owner in Five Points. He occasionally they come across interesting items and uh, evidently have come across a cursed item recently. I understand that you at least have some friendship with the new Baron of Five Points. We have a working relationship. Well, that is more than I have, and I've uh, not heard the best thing since he's taken over, so... Be a doll and go gather the object for me. Very well. 
That's all that I had this morning. I'm on my way to a meeting and just figured I'd drop by since I was in the area. I can see you don't really take seriously the note I put out to everyone that I was not to be disturbed for these free days, like you do every year since I started putting out that note. This is the city that never sleeps. Always something going on, and I mean, I'm sure you'll find something useful on your way, too. Jeremiah will head back inside and not bother to do any sort of goodbyes. Zarn just, like, tips his hat at you as, like, you turn around and starts heading out. And then from the kitchen, Dinah's just like, what did that asshole want? I swear to God, I'm going to strangle him one of these days. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he wants me to look into a item, particularly cursed item someone picked up accidentally. Well, that's never good. Mm, no. Well, unfortunately, I had a last-minute client call this morning, and they're meeting me at the storage unit, and I don't have enough time to swing by my apartment. I will have these dry-cleaned before they're returned to you, and wear gloves before you deal with any cursed items. Yeah. Uh, Jesus. Because I really want to start my day off with all this shit. Uh, I'll uh, see you later, Dinah. You too. And she just gives you, like, a kiss on the cheek as she's heading out the door. And locks the door with her set of keys to your apartment. Jeremiah will take a bite out of a piece of toast that she's left him, stare at the oven for a little bit, and we'll go get ready for the day. As Jeremiah is getting ready for the day, we find ourselves outside the rundown Lockwood Manor. We zoom into Alistair's room, where he is being stirred awake by the sound of police sirens. Alistair rises slowly from his bed, as most of the manor, his bedroom is generously described as a fucking mess. He sort of saunters his way over to the window and peers outside to see what the sirens are about. You can't see what the sirens are about, but they are headed towards the square of five points. Well, that's his... Interesting as anything else going on for the day. Perhaps something worth looking into at the very least. Does anybody else seem to be sort of out on the street? It is early in the morning, New Year's Day. People are not out yet except for that one crazy person who's like, yeah, I'm going to go for a jog and start my year off right. That is decidedly not Alistair. He is going to go about getting himself ready. He's not in a particular rush, but he does definitely want to check in and find out what's going on. When you go downstairs, I'm assuming that your door has like one of those old letterboxes where people can shove mail through. Oh yeah, for sure. You see a cream-colored, expensive-looking envelope sitting in your entryway like it's been shoved through the door. Mail so early on New Year's Day. That's quite queer. He is going to reach down and pick it up. And assuming it's labeled, check to see who it may be from. The envelope just has your name written in very fine script and clearly with like a fountain ink pen. Is the envelope sealed or is it sort of just tucked together? It has a wax seal. The wax itself is black. On the seal, there is a tree of life motif with a chain around it and a lock. You would recognize this as the Lockwood seal. (sighs) A heavy sigh as Alistair goes to get his letter opener and pop this envelope open. Inside is a very short invitation from Theodora, to meet for coffee. Alistair, like, narrows his eyes at the sheet of paper as if it's going to give him any answers, and says, why? Do you want to roll to figure someone out? You might be able to do that from the sheet of paper. Yeah, we'll give that a shot. That's a three. So we get that shot of Alistair, like, staring at this sheet of paper, wondering why. And then it's kind of like this realization that she is extending an olive branch 
And regardless of how he responds to this, he's going to owe Theodora for that. Theodora now has a debt on Alistair for extending the olive branch. I'm sure that won't come back to bite me in the ass. When is this invitation for? Does it have like a time and date? It has her phone number to reach out to her. Oh, how unfortunate. Alistair is going to make breakfast before he even goes about thinking about contacting her. As Alistair goes to make breakfast, we find ourselves outside a very out-of-place bookshop with a apartment above it. And we hear the sound of glass breaking. Well, that's not good. Was Alex asleep or was he awake? Alex makes it a point to sleep as little as possible, so probably awake. All right, so where in the shop slash house was Alex? What time of day is it? Real early in the morning. Okay, he would probably be upstairs in his office then. The crash came from downstairs. So I think Alex is just very nonchalantly going to, you know, get up from his desk where he was probably starting work on yet another illuminated book and toss a scarf on and just very calmly walk downstairs. It's a cold morning as you walk downstairs. And the only thing that seems out of place on your street is a black car that's parked on the street across from your shop that you don't normally see there. It's not one that you know who all lives in this area. Clearly not a customer because the shop isn't open yet, but the car is just sitting there. And when you look, the front part of the shop looks fine. Okay, so that wasn't uh, any of my glass breaking. If it was your glass, it was on the backside. Okay, well, let's go check that right quick then. As Alex moves around to the backside, one of the back windows into the stock room is broken. I'm assuming this has been smashed in. So does it look like someone like threw a rock or... When you peer into the window, there is your bouquet of roses tied to a brick. Charming. I'm assuming that itself is the message. Yeah, there's no other message. It's just like the smashed bouquet of roses, rose petals scattered all over your stock room. I'm going to uh, pick that up and make a brief call to someone to repair that. And then I would like to get in contact with Alistair. You have connections. You know someone to call about a window. Yeah, I didn't think that was going to be the, uh, the hard part there. How are you getting in contact with Alistair? I assume he has a phone, and given that I routinely help him keep demons at bay, I assume that I have that number. So I'm just going to call him. Hello. It's quite early to be hearing from you. Yes, well, I need a favor. Seems to be the early theme of the year. Oh, I think you might enjoy this one. Uh... Would you be willing to meet me at Point Claire? To what end? I'm going courting. Let's pretend that that makes any sort of sense to me. And when is it that you would like to be meeting up? Well, I am a traditional sort. Let's call it midnight. Charming. I think I can make some time in my schedule. Wonderful. Thank you ever so much. I will see you then. Thank you. And I just, you know, hang up at that point. As we get that click, we move to Silk's apartment. Silk is already awake and dressed. So, Silk, your morning so far has been pretty standard. And as you are moving into your living room, something under your tree branch that's on display catches your eye. Well, I'll go see what that is. It is a piece of rose-scented paper that just has a nice little note about congratulations on your 20 years here in St. Fleur. It's been lovely watching you from a distance. I would love to have you over for tea. Signed, Midnight Roses. <sighs> I was wondering when she would get to me. Silk folds the note and puts it in the inside pocket of his uh, suit jacket. So it's just welcoming me to the city or... Yes, and come over today for tea. Basically, whenever you want, Midnight Roses is expecting you. Lovely. Then I am walking out the door. 
Silk does grab his own tea set from like next to the uh, front door because he's not drinking her tea. And then our final piece. Victor, where'd you sleep last night? There's an alley behind the diner that has a nice dumpster that catches the wind. So it keeps it from being too cold. I was wrapped up in a blanket that I normally keep in my duffel bag. Victor, you are woken by your phone vibrating. And when you wake up, you're also surprisingly warm. Somebody has draped an extra like knit green blanket over you. That feels a little magical. Victor pulls off the blanket and uh, he sniffs it. He's going to try and figure out whose it is. I think that's a let it out. Sounds good to me. That's not great. That's a six. As you sniff it, you get the overwhelming scent of tea leaves and roses. And you know nothing comes free from midnight roses. If she gave you a blanket, a very nice one that will help keep you warm, she probably wants something from you. Probably. Do I owe her a debt? Yes, you do. I know at this point that it doesn't matter whether I return this blanket or not. She's going to make me pay for it. So I fold it up with my own and put it in my duffel bag. And then I answer the phone. It is your mom calling. And as soon as you pick up, she doesn't even wait for you to say hello. Doesn't wait for anything. She just says, you need to get to the square now. What's going on? Can you not smell the blood on the air? I hang up the phone. I move quickly towards the square. The diner's on the square, so it should be quick. And I uh, make sure that my snub-nosed revolver is still concealed in my boot. As you rush towards the square, you see that it's already been like blocked off with police tape. Luckily, it's still early morning, so there's not a lot of people around. Your mom is there. A few other police officers you know are there. And in the middle of the square where there is a fountain that has been turned off because it's winter time, there is a body tied to it. The blood patterns has all the markings of a werewolf killing. And on this person's head is a twisted silver circlet. I stop well before getting to those police lines. And uh, I cross my arms and wait for my mom to notice me. She notices you almost as soon as you make it to the police lines. You two have that family pack connection. And she like heads over and holds up the police tape for you. I walk under it. Do you know when this happened? None of the security cameras, they all cut out. And like she gestures towards like the various shops and like the diner on the square. The waitress at the diner last took a smoke break at four and there was nothing here. And then it was 6.30 when a jogger called it in. Okay. I'm assuming there are more cops than just my mom here. Oh, yeah. Most of them are the human cops. And then there is also your cousin, Anastasia, who is one of the detectives in the force. I'm going to move closer, but not get into the... Is, there's blood everywhere? Yes. Like, very messy. I'm going to kneel next to the blood and look up at that person's face. Do I know who that is? Roll with power to put a face to a name. All right. That is a seven. When you put a face to a name or a name to the face in this situation, roll with their faction. On a hit, you know their reputation. The GM tells you what most people know about them. You know that this is Kieran Shearer. Kieran Shearer is a five-point staple. They run an odds and ends shop that is on the square and have been known to procure an item or two for people in need. And they have been actively involved in the parish of St. Fleur and the satellite church here in Five Points. Any idea what a shopkeeper is doing dead in my fountain? Who are you addressing that to? You know what? I'm going to talk to Anastasia now. Sorry, Anastasia. So Anastasia, uh, she is shorter than you, medium height, fairly well built. Her blonde hair is pulled back into a ponytail and she's dressed sharply for her job. She was like crouching down by the fountain and taking some samples when you walked up. She has very sharp features, which the audience notices as she stands up. And she gestures up towards the circlet on the shopkeeper's head. Well, I figure it has something to do with that. But you know the slew of murders lately. It's Do you know if this guy had any involvement in the truth? 
She does like that vague hand gesture, which means, hey, I'm talking to you about the supernatural, but we're kind of in public, so I'm trying to be somewhat sly about it. Yeah, they knew a few things. Um, Not everything, but enough to be dangerous and helpful at times. Well, whoever did this did a real good job on making it look like a werewolf, but... But? I mean, almost all the werewolves in the city are in our pack, and very few of them transform outside of the full moon, and even then, everyone was accounted for. I wasn't. I uh, leaned down and looked at the blood. I'm going to try and take a sample of my own using a corner of my blanket that I have torn off as I approached. While you're doing that, what is everybody else up to? Jeremiah is finishing up getting ready for the day. I would imagine by this point, Alistair has dressed himself, finished up his breakfast. He's still putting off making that phone call to his cousin, so he's going to go out and investigate. Like, he's not going out into the street, but he's standing out on his front porch to see if there's any sort of sign of what may be happening down in the square. You can see the square from your front porch. It's a bit of a way down, but you can. And it is completely police taped off. There are a couple of police cars parked in like the entrances to it with their sirens on. Well, just the lights. So whatever it is definitely warranted a large police response. Let's see. Deal with the police. Or deal with my cousin. (sighs) He turns and walks inside to make the phone call to his cousin. We see him sit on his tattered couch. He dials the number that was left in the letter. And, like, his finger hovers over the call button for probably a couple of seconds before he finally presses it. Good morning. Theodora? Oh, Alistair, I'm assuming. It's been a long time since we've talked. Yes, uh, some might say far too long. Some would. I received a letter from you that seemed to indicate you might be in that camp. Uh, All the old guard has passed at this point. There is no reason why we can't put old grudges behind us. Yes, uh, well, who am I to turn down an offer of free tea? Uh, when would you like to meet up? You hear some rustling like she's pulling out a pocketbook. Um, does this afternoon work for you? This afternoon sounds lovely. Uh, say three o'clock? Sure. Um, do you want me to come meet you down in Eldersburg? I can pick you up. Yes, let's go with that. I'm still in the manor. Perfect. Well, I am looking forward to seeing you. It sure will be a time. And Alistair hangs up at that point. Oh, hangs up before she can even say goodbye. How rude. Yeah, he's uh, decidedly not looking forward to this. Alex? Silk? Yeah. So I think after getting off the phone with Alistair, Alex is just going to find a little vase for his roses slip that brick casually into his pocket, and then check to see if that car is still outside his shop. That car is still outside your shop. Let's take a walk across the street. Well, you know, maybe get a newspaper. All right. Are you actively investigating the car? Oh, yeah. The point of this is to see who, if anyone, is in that right now. There is somebody sitting in the car. She has a notebook kind of like set up against the steering wheel. And, like, you see, as you're walking across the street, her scribbles something down. She's young, like, fresh out of college, raven black hair that's straight and pulled up with kind of like those hair sticks. She's dressed professionally, but maybe a little cool for the weather, and has dark amber eyes. Do I recognize her at all? Could I do, like, a face-to-a-name thing with her, or...? Yeah, go ahead and put a face-to-a-name, roll with mortality. Okay. That is a 10. On a hit, you know their reputation. You recognize her from a um, listing in the newspaper, since you read the newspaper. Her name is Cassandra DeWitt, and she is a private investigator. Okay. On a 10+, plus, you've dealt with them before. Learn something interesting or useful about them, or they owe you a debt. That is a tough question. 
I will always go with they owe me a debt. Okay, so you've dealt with Cassandra before. So you know she goes by Cass. What does she owe you a debt for? So she's a private investigator. I think at some point uh, Alex helped her on an investigation because Alex is an establishment. He knows lots of people. Uh, He's been around for a while. Does Cass know about like weird spooky stuff? As far as Alex knows, no. She occasionally does work for the St. Flora Supernatural Society, but she thinks that's bullshit. So maybe that was something that Alex helped her with, was uh, confirming that something was in fact bullshit that probably wasn't actually bullshit. So I think at that point, I'm just going to go over and tap on the, uh, the window. Cass saw you like walking up, so wasn't surprised, and she rolls down the window. Hey, Alex, how are you today? Oh, well, I was having a wonderful morning, and it appears that someone has broken one of my back windows. I don't suppose you've seen anyone in the area. Mm, no, it's just been me on the street today. Hmm. It was just a few moments ago. What brings you out here? <sighs> you know all these book thefts that have been happening lately? I'm quite concerned about them. I imagine you are. Uh, Supernatural Society seems to think that it has some sort of implication. Somebody seems to think that your bookshop's going to be one of the next targets. They hired me to stake it out. Well, I feel so much better with you on the job, but... You're being sarcastic, aren't you? Oh no, I quite appreciate it. But if you would be so kind, if you do happen to see anyone nosing around, would you inform me? Of course. Thank you ever so much. And I think I'm legitimately just going to go buy a newspaper and head back in. (laughs) We get a shot of the headline as Alex buys the newspaper. There's a big article about the new year and themes for the year and blah, blah, blah. And then there's a short little letter to the editor off to the side that is titled, Do we have a serial killer in St. Fleur? Question mark, question mark, question mark. And I think that just gets kind of a, a little chuckle out of Alex. Silk, what are you up to? So Silk is definitely driving to Eldersburg where Midnight Roses is. Can I actually try and put a face to a name here to see hopefully if one of us owes a debt to the other? Since you've not met her before, go ahead, roll to put a face to the name, see what you know about her, unless, you know, you get a 10 plus. Well, that's an 11. All right. So you know of Midnight Roses. She is a fae who has not been back to the homelands in a very, very, very long time. She apparently is not aligned with either the Seelie nor the Unseelie court. She is an important fixer in St. Fleur. She's known to know basically everything. And since the note said that she's been watching me from afar, we probably haven't met here. So this debt might be from back home. All right, so Midnight Roses owes you a debt. Hmm. If I may? Yeah, go ahead. It could be a debt that you got from someone else that owed Midnight Roses a debt. I think that makes more sense because she legitimately has not been back in. There's a lot of fey myths around Midnight Roses. She is a weird one, even by fey standards. Got it. That works for me. So Silk is driving to Eldersburg from Harbor Heights. He is taking the most scenic route possible, um, listening to opera in his Tesla and trying to, well, not trying to, he is looking cool as the camera is just following his car. So Midnight Rose's apartment is off the square. We get the shot of Silk driving towards the square. And that brings us nicely back to Victor and this dead body in the square. Victor looks up at the circlet. Yeah, that's probably some bad stuff. Um, you keep working your angles. I'll go do mine. And I start to leave. As you leave, we get the shot of Anastasia rolling her eyes at you, saying that you keep working your angles like the who the fuck do you think you are to like give me any sort of command, you homeless prick. Does she do that where I can see it? No, she does it after you walk away. (laughs) Okay, good. Victor raises the police tape over his head and walks just away from the the center of the square, not towards anywhere in particular, and pulls out his phone. And he quickly dials the number for our lovely Jeremiah. Jeremiah will pick up his phone. He was also just about to call Victor. Oh, Victor, old boy. How can I help you? So I've got a problem. 
Indeed. Uh, so do I. So do I. Uh, share yours first. All right. Kieran Shirar is dead in my square, and it looks like he's got some sort of magical amulet on his forehead. Ah, that is mighty inconvenient, because I also needed to have a word with that fellow. Uh, oh dear. Dead, you say? Uh, yeah. Has anyone touched the diadem? Uh, no one's moved the body yet. Oh, that's good. Um, say, we might need to get that diadem quickly. I've, uh, work acquaintance who says that it is cursed. Well, I assume it's going to be cursed. I think that's the item he wanted. I don't suppose this shopkeeper would just show up with a regular diadem on his head. No, probably not. Um, honestly, the cops are about to take it. It's going to not be my problem anymore. Hmm. Well, that does make things a bit more inconvenient. Say, have they uh, gotten to his shop yet? They're probably there now if or heading there soon if they haven't already. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. I could meet you there? Uh, yes. Uh, I will be there. Hmm. Assuming I don't get pulled over for speeding. I hang up the phone. Jeremiah will look at my phone, grumble about manners, and then take off and get to his car and get there very quickly. While he's driving, Jeremiah's going to try and put a face to the name of Karen Shear. See what he knows about him. All right, so you got a seven. You know their reputation. The GM tells you what most people know about them. So you have a slightly different take on Kieran Shearer. Kieran Shearer has been loosely affiliated with the Arcane Network as long as you have been in St. Fleur. You've met him a couple of times, haven't personally really dealt with him because you both tend to kind of deal in different types of items. But not only was he someone who always had good information, he was someone who was real good at finding bad items. All right. Silk, how you doing? You're getting to Midnight Roses. There's a ton of police. Do I see like the whole commotion uh, with the square? Yes, because Midnight Roses' place of residence is right off the square. Then I am going to find a uh, nice wide parking spot somewhere, take up two spaces, and um, walk up to where the commotion is. As you approach, you see a very, very bloody murder of someone who has almost been rendered beyond recognition with a silver circlet on their head. And a lot of cops. And probably Victor, who just hung up the phone. I'm going to go walk up to Victor and, well, looks like someone is making light of your territory. Victor's eye visually twitches. I suppose so, but they won't do it for very long. I'm on the trail. Um, do we know if this was a, you know, a, a standard mugging? <laughs> did, did you not see the scene? Yeah, well, mortals are so squishy, it's difficult to tell what, what's happening with them. No, it wasn't standard. It's made to look like a werewolf did it. A werewolf? One of your pack, then? Probably not. And there's a difference between being made to look like something and being something. Well, um, if you want to know what happened with them, why don't you go and ask them? They're, they're dead, Silk. That's never stopped us before. Well, it might not stop you. It does stop me. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have something I need to attend to. Well, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but our uh, mutual friend, the bookshop owner, can... Um, help you ask some questions to those who are recently no longer living. Victor winces at that idea. He's not getting his hands on the corpse of someone from my city. Well, you can do it the hard way then. I will. What are you doing down here anyway? Midnight Roses has called me for tea. She's a nice lady. Be cordial. Victor, I'm always cordial. Well then, don't break your streak. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good morning. Well, he waves his hand non-committally over his shoulder as he walks away. With that, I think I'm going to go head towards Midnight Rose's apartment. Midnight Roses is totally just leaning in the door, watching the square with amusement in her eyes. She is a plump lady with yellow eyes. Her hair is dyed dark red and she looks to be like early 40s. She is always dressed very comfortably and in a lot of knit clothing. Think like Boho lives in the forest. You get Midnight Rose's entire wardrobe. 
And she smiles when she sees you approaching, Silk. Silk tips his hat to her and, uh, well, morning tea then. Sounds lovely to me. I'm happy you responded to my invitation. Well, it was an invitation. And what kind of uh, gentleman would I be if I didn't accept uh, such a lovely invitation? I mean, you know how we are. We only do what we want. And she gestures for you to, well, she like welcomes you into her apartment. If you don't mind, I brought my own tea. I would expect nothing less. Do you want to use my kettle, or did you bring your own kettle as well? Of course I brought my own kettle. Well, I'll give you the water for free. Silk takes out a water bottle out of his pocket. Oh, man, you've spent too much time in the homelands. Mm, You could say that. Um, well, what are you going to heat it on? I am tempted to use an elemental weapon thing here on it. Or you could try to let it out to make your own fire. Sure, let's do that. All right, roll with spirit. So that's a nine. So on a hit, choose one and mark corruption. Let's actually impress Midnight Roses. That's more Silk style. So Silk twirls a finger in the sky and you see a light focus down into his hand, which then starts a little fire that he uses to warm his tea. She smiles and the two of you take a seat in her front room. She has like a big bay window that she has magicked to not look over the square. It's looking over a rose garden. There's birds. The sun is shining. That's just how she is. She's glamour to the window. It's very cozy. Everything about her apartment feels very cozy and very warm. Lovely view. Uh, I do find it much better than mm, the body. Quite, uh, quite a mess out there, isn't it? Oh, humans, what do we do with them? So, well then, I assume you didn't invite me over just for tea. Oh, I'm so offended that you assume that I have an ulterior motive, my dear. You and I both know how we are. Well, yes, I did not just invite you over for tea, though tea is lovely. I also invited you for the company. And maybe a proposition. Hmm, what sort of proposition? Well, I mean, I'm sure you've heard the rumors about me and my lack of affiliation with the courts and, oh, she's psycho and blah, 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 blah. There's like a very hefty roll of the eyes with that. Well, I assume at least half of them are true. Oh, I mean, the part about not being affiliated with either the Sealy or the Unsealy courts is true. I mean, that whole thing is just a ploy to turn Faye against themselves, and why do we keep playing into that? We have much bigger fish to fry anymore. We don't need to fight ourselves. Well, who else are we going to fight? The mortals? Mm, No, they're too easy. But there's something interesting going on in this city. Things have been moving differently lately, and that body is just one such example, and... Well, you know, for the sake of keeping some sort of sense of properness, I did start my own court uh, with some ridiculous name, and it seems that almost any fae that thinks this whole court thing is bullshit anymore finds their way to me. And you've been here for quite a while to be a fae who still really believes in all of that. I like to keep a few connections to the homeland. Well, should you ever change your mind, I always have work and places available. I will, of course, keep that in mind. That's all I really wanted to talk to you about today, and, you know, actually get to meet you. It's... I've heard such great things. Well, at least half of them are true. (laughs) Well, you don't fail to, uh, confirm them. Yeah, and I think maybe just small talk and drink tea. Yep, sounds about right. Alex, what are you doing? Are you just drinking coffee, reading your newspaper? I definitely do want to read this newspaper because, you know, Is there a serial killer? Oh, where could that possibly go? But after a point, I actually want to get in contact with Victor. We get this kind of like pan shot of Alex reading the newspaper, making snarky commentary, which goes to Victor, who is standing outside of Kieran Shearer's shop. Um, I didn't name this shop. What's a good name for like a little odds and ends store on the square of five points? The police have not gone in yet, but they do have, like, their tape up. Is there anyone actively watching it? No, they're much more concerned about 
the dead body and the blood and contacting family. And does this guy even have family? And there's there's just some hustle bustle going on. We see a shot of Victor looking left, looking right, and going up to the door. He's going to try it. Is it is it locked? It is unlocked. The shop opens at 5 a.m. Okay. I think at this point it's a good moment for uh, Jeremiah's car to appear. Find a parking spot relatively close to the front door. Yeah, as you go to park, there's some dick double space parked in a very ostentatious vehicle. Jeremiah will swear, swear some more, and eventually parallel park. Step out of his car, sling his messenger bag over his shoulder, and cane in hand, he will approach Victor at the front door. Victor motions for you to come on up and opens the door and holds it open for you. Jeremiah will slip inside first. He closes it behind us, and then he locks it. This is a very standard and yet completely out of place convenience store at the same time. The selection of items seems very odd, but very tailored for the neighborhood. Kieran was very big on making sure that they carried the right products for the right people. So there's some weird brands. There's an extensive tea selection. It's just kind of weird, but this was someone who was clearly established in Five Points and knew the neighborhood, and their store shows that. Jeremiah is going to reach into his bag, pull out a pair of dishwashing gloves, and hand them to Victor. Be careful what you touch. Most arcane objects need skin contact if they're particularly bad. Uh, and if they go through the gloves, then we're already dead. Excellent. Victor snaps the gloves on. Well, we'll look around, see if we can't find anything pulsating with evil, or that gives us a hint on who might have done this. Yes. I don't care which one of you does it, but I want one of you to roll to investigate a place of power. With power. Jeremiah will do that. That's a 10. On a hit, you see below the surface to the reality underneath. So... Jeremiah, you've been in a thousand shops that look just like this one. I mean, these are the type of shops that a lot of people use as fronts when they're dealing with arcane objects. And you are able to tell by how the coolers are set up that there is definitely like a secret storage unit vault sort of thing. If you go back through the coolers and into that area. And then on a 10 plus, you can ask the MC one question about the schemes and the politics of the faction in question. Typically, how do members of a power faction secure their arcane objects? So it kind of depends on what type of power that the person has. Typically, there's going to be some sort of magical lock on top of regular locks, and everyone still uses regular locks. And what the magical lock may be can change depending upon the person. Some people, it's more of an alarm system. Some people, it's like a self-destruct button. Jeremiah will gesture to Victor, point to the cooler, and approach it cautiously. Victor comes over as well. Is there something behind there? Uh, yes, old boy. I do believe that this is where our late friend uh, stored his objects of power. So just be mighty careful. I will take the lead on this, and something should happen. Get prepared to run and or fight. I'm always ready for that. Jeremiah is going to cautiously move the cooler, if possible. I would like you to roll to keep your cool. Alrighty. Yes. You're able to very carefully move the... Cooler, you have experience, like, this is your years of experience of being an arcane object dealer showing here. Sure, maybe you aren't arcane yourself, but you know what you're doing. And you're able to get this false door open into Kieran's vault, which is surprisingly empty, except for a few objects. There is a deck of tarot cards. There is a set of carved stone bones, and there is a ring. Jeremiah is going to approach these objects, pull out a couple of handkerchiefs from his bag, wrap each object up, and place it carefully in pockets in his bag. Victor is looking around in this room for any sort of ledger or journal, any sort of 
written material that might give him a hint on who did this to poor Kieran. You are able to find a journal that's like when you go behind the counter to where the cash register and stuff is, it's sat on a shelf beneath that register. And that journal that you grab seems to be just a very standard, oh, you know, Piper DuPont owes me $5 for gum last week and Jane Young owes me ten dollars for a pack of beer christopher long has asked me to order x object like there's some pretty detailed notes in here but it all just seems to be the very standard stuff would you like to try the role to figure someone out from this book yeah i would love to that makes sense so roll with mind yay i got a three As you are standing there, like, kind of flipping through the books, you hear the jingle of the front door opening and the heavy footfalls of multiple police officers. Victor doesn't think this notebook's going to get him anything. He puts it down on the desk behind him and moves to that back room. Is there another way out of here that isn't the front door? Yeah, there's a back door where, like, they bring stock in through and stuff. He's going to try and make eye contact with Jeremiah before he moves out the back and tries to escape. Oh, this is going to go great. All right, when you take advantage of an opening to escape a situation, roll with blood. So let's start with Victor. Victor got a seven. Yes, I did. So on a seven to nine, you get to choose two from the list. I'm going to leave something important behind. What are you leaving behind? I think I I maybe get cut in the escape. I leave some blood behind. And then I'm also going to suffer harm during the escape to tie those two things together. All right. So because you're moving quickly, you don't see that there's like some old rusted nails sticking out of the doorway and like scratch part of your arm on it. But you get out the door before the police see you. Jeremiah, you rolled a one. Yep. So you do not get out of this situation. I will offer you this. You can either make it out, but leave the vault open, or you can get all of that closed up. I will get it closed up. We get that shot of Victor running out. Jeremiah is like carefully closing things up. And as we see Jeremiah get everything back in place, we hear a gun get drawn and the harsh yell of, put your hands up and don't move. Whoa, yeah, oh, oh, I'm very, very, very sorry. Oh, I, I was not expect police to be suddenly in here. Jeremiah will put his hands up and turn around slowly. It's two pretty average looking police officers. And it's the woman who has like drawn her gun and is pointing at you. And the um, male who shouted at you and he says, did you not see the tape on the door? Uh, tape on the door? No, I just, uh, Kieran and myself go way back and I just let myself in the back. I was expecting to see him from for lunch, but uh, he doesn't appear to be anywhere in this shop. Roll to mislead, distract, or trick someone. Oh, yes. All right, that is a 13. On a hit, they are fooled at least for a moment. On a 10 plus, pick three. I am going to pick, you avoid further entanglement. Uh, You confuse him for some time, and I guess expose a weakness or flaw. The two cops look very confused and kind of look at each other, and the woman lowers her gun and, like, steps towards you and puts a hand on your shoulder and is like, Oh, you're a friend of his. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. We have some terrible news for you. Uh, I, I don't, I'm afraid I don't understand, like, uh. Does something happen to little uh, old Kiri? She walks you out the back. Because she's not about to walk you towards the the body of your old friend who you go way back with. Obviously. Um, So the the, like weakness or flaw we've exposed here is that uh, the police have a soft spot. They're very caring, nice people. (laughs) Or at least this police officer does in particular. What's her name? I got to give her a name now. This is 
Josephine Diaz. She like very gently breaks the news to you of, you know, somebody has murdered your friend. Um, we really think that you should go home for the time being. It's um, there's a lot of police here. It's dangerous. We don't know what happened yet. Jeremiah will put on a very convincing show. He won't cry. He'll look very sad, defeated. And I want to persuade an NPC here. Jeremiah wants to find out anything he can about any objects Kieran might have had on him. So what are you saying to persuade her to tell you this? Oh, that's just terrible. But uh, I'm very sorry to ask this, but uh, did he... Did he have any items on him when you found him? You see, he contacted me. We uh, were very interested in little like uh, curios and like objects of history. And uh, he said he found something rather remarkable that he wanted to show me. And this is why he invited me over to lunch. Uh, and I was just wondering if like maybe he had something on him when the body was found. All right, roll to persuade an NPC through your seduction of being sad. Yes. That is a seven. On a seven to nine, they modify the terms or demand a debt. She kind of like seems a little taken aback at first at the question and then says, um, I, I mean, I could try to, mm, I'm, I'm really not supposed to share that sort of information with people outside of the force. If I tell you this, you really can't tell anyone else, especially the media. You're going to owe her. That's her soft way of demanding a debt. Oh, I, I quite understand. Not a word will pass my lips of this. This uh, item seemed to mean a, a lot to him. And I would uh, hate to see anything bad happen to it. Uh, there is a silver circlet on his head. And the chief of police has been very insistent that no one touch it yet. Until we figure out what exactly it means and why it's there. I see. Uh, thank you for telling me that. Uh, thank you very much, officer, uh, for not escalating this dreadful misunderstanding, finding me in a crime scene out of proportion. Uh, and I think I'll take your advice, uh, go home and uh, get some rest. That's a good idea. And we cut to Victor and Alex, or Alex, who's making the phone call. Yep, still just sitting in my office, uh, you know, casually finishing up like a word jumble. Victor is, like, leaning against a wall, like, holding his arm. His phone buzzes, picks it up, looks at the cracked screen, rolls his eyes, and opens it. Hello? Hello, Victor. Do you remember uh, a few weeks ago when I asked you to simply protect a young woman and she wound up in eight pieces in an alleyway? She deserved worse. Yes, well, eight. Victor... If you would be so kind as to meet me and do a small kindness for me, I would perhaps begin to forget how many pieces. I'm a little busy right now. What do you need? Oh, nothing terribly outside your uh, realm of expertise. This morning, someone threw a brick through my window, and I simply want you to find them. You don't have to do anything. I just need a name. Explicitly, this is Alex calling in a debt. Yeah, I, yep, mm-hmm. For the listeners at home, while Victor's thinking about that. When you cash in a debt, remind your debtor why they owe you in order to make a PC, in this case, do you a favor at moderate cost. I can't get to that right now. And he thinks about what leads he actually has on his current murder investigation, which are none. You know what? No, I can, I can come over now. Wonderful. I've got a few things I need to take care of along the way, but I might be a bit, but I'll be there shortly. Try not to keep me waiting too long. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to subscribe to us on your preferred podcatcher and follow us on Twitter at St. Fleur Pod. If you want to support the creators who are bringing you this content, consider becoming a patron. You can find us on Patreon at the link in the episode description. Shadows of St. Fleur is an Urban Shadows actual play podcast emceed and edited by Caitlin Cornell. You can find her on Twitter at supercaitlin one Alistair, who prefers his cousin over the police, but just barely, is voiced and played by Andy. You can find him on Twitter at AndyLion92. Alex, who will never forget that it was in fact 
8, Pieces, is voiced and played by Jeremy. You can find him on Twitter at TayuFace. Silk, who has absolutely no idea how human muggings work, is voiced and played by Eric. You can find him on Twitter at PrimeFactorX01. Victor, son of the police chief and baron of the murdered, is voiced and played by Evan. You can find him on Twitter at Nyquist underscore J-E. And finally, Jeremiah, old boy and master of sad seduction, is voiced and played by Matthew. Urban Shadows is a Powered by the Apocalypse tabletop role-playing game written, designed, and developed by Andrew Medeiros and Mark Diaz-Truman. It is published by Magpie Games, who you can find at magpiegames.com or on Twitter at magpieofficial. The intro music used in this episode was Epic Unease by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompotech.com. The outro music used in this episode is Dark Carnival VL by Paratoon. You can find their work at paratoon.com. Farewell, dear listener. We'll see you next time you visit St. Fleur.